Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Music of various traditions and styles in today's lineup. Jeffrey Bootser and Titi Mahoney recreate the joy of Vince Guaraldi's score to a Charlie Brown Christmas again this year in various locations around Atlanta. We'll sample some of the musical delights later this hour. Plus, singer Mike Kinnebrew can't let Christmas go. That's actually the title of his new release. And we'll hear more from the Georgia singer-songwriter in his own words as part of our series, Speaking of Music. First, Anthony Russell is a non-traditional singer performing traditional genres of music. Following the likes of artists Sidor Belarski and Paul Robeson, he's an African-American bass composer and arranger specializing in Yiddish language music and style. His recording credits include an EP, Convergence, released in 2018, and the album Cosmopolitan, released in August of this year. Anthony Russell will perform a program titled Zweibrüder, Two Brothers, with San Francisco musician Dimitri Gaskin at Temple Beth Tikva on Saturday, December 10th. He joins me now via Zoom to talk more about his artistry and upcoming performance. Anthony Russell, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Or as I would say in Yiddish, Shalom Aleichem. And Shalom Aleichem to you. I read that your mother was a classical pianist, and I was hoping you'd tell us about your interest in music as a child. Yes, my mother was a classical pianist. She was a big fan of Debussy, and I remember as a child her having a book of Debussy art songs around the house. And even though I never really looked into this book or, or played any music or sang any music from the book, I like to think that there was some sort of intimation of my future 
and the fact that this book was constantly following us around as we moved around the country. That's right. I read that your father was in the military. He was. We we moved around a lot, and it was a little bit of a hardship for me, not only because moving around a lot is hard for a child, but also because it meant that we, we didn't have a piano at home. So when I first started getting interested in music, I somehow, somewhere down the line, I managed to get a keyboard, and that was where on which I took my first music lessons in piano. And at what point did you become interested in opera? Very early. It's an unusual story. So we happened to move into a house where um, the previous owner had a number of tapes of various movies that I guess he had illegally recorded at that particular point. And one of those tapes was of the movie Amadeus. Oh. And yeah, I became obsessed with this movie. I used to watch it several times every day. It didn't occur to me that I could basically go to a library or a record store and buy all of the music from the movie and just listen to it whenever I wanted to. Oftentimes, I just rewinded the movie and watched my favorite sections over and over and over again. So I like to think of that as being sort of the beginning of my interest in in opera and in classical music. And that was around when I was 12. So basically, I had this great interest. I, I listened widely. But at that particular point, I wasn't an opera singer. I was just interested in opera as, as a subject. And it wasn't until I was 17 and um, I'd been taking piano for a few years that I decided I would try my hand at singing. And within a year of taking singing lessons, I won my very first competition in the late 90s. I won $500, which seemed like a lot of money in that distant time. <laughs> it was, and it uh, still is. Yes, yes. So basically from there, I started singing in the chorus and singing small roles in local opera companies. And as they say, the rest is history. Oh, my. Now, I saw that your family eventually settled in the Bay Area. You spent most of your youth in Oakland. Most of my youth actually in a town near Oakland called Vallejo. But I did go to college in Oakland, a Holy Names University, and that's where I received my formal musical education. And in the Bay Area, there's a strong tradition of vocal music, and of course, San Francisco opera is storied. Yes, actually, that's where I made my professional debut was with the San Francisco Opera in the premiere of Philip Glass's uh, Civil War set opera, Appomattox. I was playing a couple of small roles in that opera, one as a Black Union soldier and another as a, a recently liberated slave. So it made a lot of sense to me as somebody who grew up primarily in the Bay Area that if classical music and um, specifically vocal music was what I was pursuing as an interest and as a career that eventually my paths would cross with the San Francisco Opera, and it did. Yeah. Will you share the story about the impact of your mother giving you a copy of Fiddler on the Roof? <laughs> so this is, this is another movie that I was just very, very 
sort of obsessed with and that I watched over and over and over again. I mean, it's an amazing musical. I think it does an amazing job of depicting a very particular set of circumstances that happen to a very particular group of people in a very particular time and place, but it still manages to feel like a universal story. And I just completely became obsessed with, with the movie and with the music to the point to where like, I pretty much know it off the top of my head. I could sit down and give you a one-man show of Fiddler on the Roof. I don't think that'll ever happen. Oh, I'd love to hear it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what the future holds, but as far as I know, that's not going to happen. What is really interesting is that as I grow older, the characters who I identify with the most have changed. I think in the beginning, I identified very strongly with Mottel the Tailor. And I'd say now I identify the most with From a Sarah, <laughs> the vengeful ghost of Laser Wolf's first wife. I understand the importance of having things and the importance of living in people's memory, even as a ghost in an imaginary dream. <laughs> oh, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, she wasn't happy or as Tevi imagined concocted for his daughter's love marriage to take place. He concocted from a Sarah as resenting anyone taking her place and her pearls, right? Well, it must have been, I mean, even though he concocted, it must have been believable because, I mean, you know, Golda believed it immediately. There's no question as to whether he had made up the dream or not. Like, she, she took him at his word, so. I was intrigued recently. Lyric Opera of Chicago did a production of Fiddler. Were you aware? Yes, I understand that Fiddler's been done by a few opera companies, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, the most recent production of Fiddler that I've seen was the one that was in Yiddish. I believe it's just been revived in New York by the Volksbühne a Yiddish theater company. And it was amazing seeing Fiddler in Yiddish because there were all of these sort of, these turns of phrase that are pretty much germane to the Yiddish language that all of a sudden were activated by the story of Fiddler on the Roof in a way that I think is very different when you're watching it in English. I mean, to give you an example, you know, many times Tevya says, you know, well, the good book says, well, the good book says. And I don't know any Jews who refer to the Bible as the good book. So when you hear Tevye in this Yiddish production of Fidon Ruf say, you know, you know, in the Torah, it's like, oh, that's very specific. Like in the Torah, it's not like the good book. It's literally the Torah. It is, it is, you know, the, the, the book, the book, you know, the, the, <laughs> the Jewish Bible, not just kind of a sort of amorphous good book, you know, so there's an amazing amount of specificity that comes into the picture once Yiddish is involved. Speaking of Yiddish, the brilliant singer, actor, athlete, polymath, Paul Robeson was a famous African-American bass who also performed in Yiddish. What influence has Paul Robeson had on you, Anthony? He's had an immense influence on my career and on sort of my identity as a Black, classically-oriented singer. I actually explored a lot of this in a project that I did 
earlier this year called My Own Personal Robeson. And in that project, um, which took place basically virtually, I sort of explored the meaning of Paul Robeson to me as not only as a classical singer, but also as a politically engaged person. I mean, I think oftentimes that's something that a lot of people forget is that he was immensely politically engaged and was always fighting for what he thought was right and how there was a great amount of continuity between his identity as a politically engaged person and his identity as a singer. I mean, in many ways, they were one. And what I wanted to do was explore who Paul Robeson was to me, had been to me, and could be to me as somebody who is interested in in continuing to develop a political identity, especially in view of the the recent uprisings around Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd and countless other unarmed Black people. So what Paul Robeson allowed me to do was to discuss how a Black singer, and specifically like a Black-based kind of classically oriented singer, could develop a political identity as well as an identity as a performer. Mm, And such deep humanity. Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is singer Anthony Russell. On the Convergence EP, how did combining African-American spirituals and Ashkenazi music deepen your connection to traditional African-American musical roots? It's interesting because I think as a Black classical singer, spirituals are looked on as being a natural part of your repertoire. I mean, back in the day, you know, a a Black classical singer would get up and sing an hour's worth of very high-toned European art music. And at the very end of it, um, would be expected to perform spirituals kind of as a hallmark of the African-American classical singer. So I had a relationship with spirituals from the very beginning of my career, but there was something in me that I think in a way wanted to shun that because it was expected of me. It was expected that I would be a singer of spirituals. And I think I wanted to establish for myself a career that was based on my own choices as opposed to one that was developed along the lines of what I was supposed to do. I mean, even now, I'm a performer of Yiddish music, which I think is a relatively um, unforeseen outcome for the Black classical singer. So I think in, in many ways, I'm still someone who thinks of themselves as having a career based on my own choices. So I think to a certain extent, like in the first part of my career, I was very alienated from Black music, from from the the spiritual as a genre, because I felt like it was expected of me. When I started performing music in Yiddish, when I started learning Yiddish 
art song and specifically Yiddish folk song, the thing that it reminded me most of, of course, was of spirituals. So what that required of me was an investigation, both internal and external, of what my relationship was to this music and what it meant to me and what it could mean to me. And I think that Robeson was an important aspect of that introspection because he performed the spiritual as an expression of his identity, not only as a Black man, but as somebody who was trying to make the point that the lives of Black people and the culture of Black people matters and should be heard and should be disseminated even from the concert stage. So working on Convergence really allowed me to find a way to perform this music, specifically spirituals, in a way that made sense to me and that didn't feel like an obligation, but that felt like an ability to really inhabit myself. Your promise, girl, you made to me got married till I go free, I go free, Lord, I go free, won't got married till I go free. I was riveted to reading about the resonance Yiddish music has for you and the convergence with African-American spirituals as I have long been drawn to spirituals and African-American gospel music. Even though I'm a Jew, the fact that so much centers around Jesus, in particular in the gospel music, and redemption. For me, there's, there's been a universal message and, and a visceral reaction that's just joyful. And I, I wondered if, if you would elaborate on some of those thoughts about cross-currents here. Yes. So basically with Ashkenazi Jewish music and with African-American music coming from the 19th and early 20th century, what we have are two respective kinds of music which are being created under basically societal oppression or maybe being created in response to that or in spite of that. And I like to think because those are the circumstances under which these two respective musics were, were created, that there are certain affinities that these kinds of music have towards each other. There really is a very interesting sort of relationship that I think each respective kind of music has with God, with the idea that each respective group of people has a very special relationship with God and is constantly looking towards heaven for any number of things, for an ear, for action, for grace, 
for redemption. And like I said, I think because of those respective histories kind of paralleling each other, the sounds of these kinds of, of music have affinities towards each other. And I'm not the first person, you know, to feel this way. I mean, there's been any number of instances in which there's been an exploration of, of Jewish and Black music. I mean, most famously, of course, the opera Porgy and Bess, written by George Gershwin, who was a first-generation American and an Ashkenazi Jew. And in, in that opera, you can see sort of what I like to think of is the development of a sort of Black Jewish aesthetic. And for example, there's a famous song from, from the opera, It Ain't Necessarily So, in which the character Sport in Life is singing uh, about the Bible. But the interesting thing about that song is that the melody for that song was taken from the Ashkenazi Torah blessings. Baruch, Baruch it ain't necessarily so, it ain't necessarily so. So he's sort of like fusing this this kind of, like I said, it's an aesthetic. It's sort of like an African-American Ashkenazi Jewish aesthetic. There's elements of, of, of both sort of at play in, in conversation with each other. In the same way that I think the histories of Black people and Jewish people have been at play and in conversation with each other, especially on American ground. So I think there were a lot of really interesting precedents for what I was doing, but I also had to figure out a way of doing it that made sense to me. Mm. Anthony, there is a love story within your career backstory. <laughs> Would you tell us about meeting and marrying your husband and how it led to your conversion? Yeah, so basically I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area and I had just auditioned for Appomattox at the San Francisco Opera and then I was about to leave for New York in order to do an opera program there. And I had been corresponding with a man who would become my husband for a little while. And when I got the go-ahead that I was going to be a part of the opera program in New York, I wrote him, he lived in New York at the time, and said, hey, I'm going to be in New York. Would you like to meet up? And we did. Our first date was, was to a Mets game. I don't think the Mets won, but anybody who's a Mets fan won't be particularly surprised by that <laughs> outcome. <laughs> it was at Shea Stadium, and I'm not even sure, like, the place where we met even exists anymore. Um, it's probably a parking lot now, but it exists in our memory, much like uh, the temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> oh, so, my. <laughs> serious Mets fans um, here. Uh, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. So that was kind of this summer whirlwind romance, and... Eventually, I decided that that uh, I wanted to be with him, so I moved out to New York, and we started becoming an item. At one point over the course of our relationship, he asked me if I had any interest in converting to Judaism, and I said I was interested, but I didn't do it immediately because, once again, I wanted to make sure that if I was going to make this decision, I was going to do it in a way that made sense to me. Now. I had been raised in, in a Christian household and had a very strong sort of grounding 
in the Jewish Bible. So it wasn't like I came to Judaism with a complete lack of knowledge as to what the contents of Judaism was. But I will tell you, there was a certain amount of ignorance between what I knew of the Jewish Bible and say what anybody was doing Jewishly in in Fiddler on the Roof, which is really funny. I remember watching the beginning of the movie where Golda is lighting the, the Shabbos candles and I had no idea what she was doing. I just assumed because they lived in rural Russia and it was getting dark, they were lighting candles. <laughs> <laughs> and now, like every Friday night, practically every Friday night, like I light candles in my own house, you know, like, you know, I bench licht, like, I, you know, I bless the candles before Shabbos comes in. So, you know, there are a lot of things which one doesn't really know unless one has a familiarity with Jewish practice and Jewish culture. And there's a lot that I didn't know. So it was some years after meeting my husband before I decided I finally wanted to formalize my interest in the Jewish religion and, and convert to Judaism. Hmm. And have you learned Yiddish? I have. I always say, it's a bit difficult to learn Yiddish because... I say it's hard for me to speak Yiddish because, and then I give a bunch of excuses. <laughs> um, I did have formal training in, in Yiddish at the Tel Aviv University summer Yiddish program. And I walked into that program basically unable to form more than a couple of sentences in Yiddish and having no written Yiddish. And I came out of that program basically being able to write in Yiddish and being able to express myself to a certain degree. I'd say... I would grade myself as lower intermediate speaker of Yiddish. Like I said, I can express myself to a certain degree, and my comprehension leaves uh, much to be desired. But I do have a grounding in the language. I can sit down and I can read it. I read very slowly. <laughs> well, it's a different alphabet. It's a completely different alphabet, and I think a lot of people don't know that because so many words in Yiddish have passed into American English, usually transliterated. So... I think it's always a surprise to some people that real Yiddish is written in, in Hebrew letters or in Yiddish oasis, as they would call it in, in the Yiddish language. Oh, but you not only understand, but gorgeously convey the meaning of the Yiddish lyrics in the songs you perform. Yes, that is my obligation and my honor and my pleasure as a performer of music in the Yiddish language is to convey the meaning of the words that I'm singing to my audiences, even if they don't necessarily understand what I'm singing. And I think to a certain extent that's a value that I learned being a conventional classical opera singer because, you know, being a classical singer means often singing in languages that the audience doesn't necessarily understand. But you have to be able to transmit the meaning of what you are singing to your audiences in order to give them a reason to stay in the seat and to listen to what you have to say. Anthony, what can you tell us about the album you just released in August, Cosmopolitan. So Cosmopolitan is a 
uh, an album in which Dimitri Gaskin, my collaborator and Sveb reader, and I sort of explore the contents of contemporary Jewish life as it was in the first half of the 20th century. And it's a particular historical phenomenon that I don't think receives a lot of attention. Basically, I first encountered it in a book called A Rich Brew by the writer Shachar Pinsker. And basically, it was about Jewish life in cafes around the turn of the century until about the 1950s. And it turns out that there was a lot of production of Jewish culture and Jewish art in the world of the cafe. And I became really sort of enamored of this idea of this very sort of urban, contemporary, really sort of interesting kind of bohemian life that a number of Yiddish writers, poets, and artists led. So Dimitri and I basically collected some poems from these particular Yiddish poets, and we created this album, Cosmopolitan, which is sort of like an evocation of this sort of heady, cosmopolitan, urban world of, of sort of like city Yiddish. And the writers who sort of wrote um, describing the, this life and this world. Celia Dropkin is one of the poets who we set to music in this album. She's an amazing poet who writes very honestly about female desire and the body in, in such a modern way that I think many people, she's enigmatic. You know, I think when it comes to the Yiddish language, there's often a stereotype as to what the Yiddish language is supposed to address. There's the idea that the world of Fiddler on the Roof is, you know, the distinct purview of the Yiddish language. What's interesting is that, of course, Fiddler on the Roof was based on stories that were written by the writer Sholem Aleichem. But when Sholem Aleichem was writing these stories, that entire way of life was already in the past. He wasn't necessarily writing about a contemporary reality. If anything, he was looking back on his, his father's generation. It's often difficult for audiences to understand that contemporary life and Yiddish have completely developed along parallel lines. And I think in Cosmopolitan, Cosmopolitan, we wanted to make sure that we sort of depicted a, a, a moment, a very interesting, lively, bohemian moment that Yiddish had in the first half of the 20th century. <laughs> Now you have an upcoming performance at Temple Beth Tikva. Would you tell us about the program? Yes. So it's basically going to be a rich and diverse assortment of music in the Yiddish language from various sources. So there's going to be traditional folk songs, art songs, 
my collection of music combining 100 years of African-American Ashkenazi Jewish music, as we've already discussed. And as I just discussed, our new songs that we've written in the past five years set to the words of modernist Yiddish poets from the first half of the 20th century. It'll, it'll be interesting. Almost all music in Yiddish shares a DNA of musical creativity stemming from the cultures of Jewish Eastern and Central Europe and its co-territorial peoples. So this means that there are many musical genres attached to the Yiddish language. There's folk music, there's theater music, cabaret music, protest music, popular songs, and art music. So the particular genre I perform and Dimitri Gaskin and I compose in is called Kunstlieder, which is roughly analogous to classical art song, in that it's often poetry that is set to music for performance on the concert stage. But it also shares cultural material with all those other genres as, as well. So you're it's likely to hear a classical setting of a folk song or a nigm, which is a unaccompanied, wordless melody that comes from the Hasidic tradition. You're as likely to hear something in that particular folk mold as you are to hear um, something that's comprehensively composed and feels very classical in its genre. music or theater music. So there's a lot of different kinds of music that we'll be covering over the course of, of this concert. And I know I'll have a lot of fun and I know <laughs> Dimitri has a lot of fun and I think the audience will have a lot of fun too. Anthony Russell, he'll perform Sway Breeder with San Francisco musician Dimitri Gaskin at Temple Beth Tikva this Saturday, December 10th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the annual Charlie Brown Christmas concert is returning, and in a moment we'll listen back to my conversation with the show's creators, Jeffrey Bootser and T.T. Mahoney. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. More than 50 years after its debut, 
A Charlie Brown Christmas remains among the best-loved holiday specials of all time. Two of the most memorable parts of the animated classic are the scrawny but endearing Christmas tree and the music, a marvelous score by Vince Guaralti. Atlanta drummer Jeffrey Bertzer and keyboardist T.T. Mahoney have performed a Charlie Brown Christmas concert for over a decade now. This year, there are performances at various Metro Atlanta venues from December 13th through 19th. When Bootser and Mahoney joined me last year, Mahoney explained how the show got started. Jeffrey and I, somewhere back there in the mid-aughts, I guess, started doing these sort of one-off tribute shows. We did them for... Tom Waits and Nick Cave, Leonard Cohen, people kind of of that ilk. You know, we just found that we, we really enjoyed them and had a natural chemistry doing that, and, you know, bringing in different singers and sort of a, a larger musical family that would work on these. And uh, one of the ideas that got batted around because, you know, everybody's got a, a real connection to, the, to Charlie Brown, obviously, but Jeffrey especially, and he can describe that in a minute, but because he had that connection, he always wanted to do Charlie Brown. And so we, like so many things I've found in my creative life you know the idea was just oh it'll be a one-off it'll be a few of our friends will come and we'll do it and it'll be fun and that'll be that and it's really become something much more than we certainly anticipated when we started you know something that's just really neat for us and uh from what we gather from the community of people that's grown up around it kind of a special part of people's holidays so it's been kind of amazing and unanticipated yeah in fact your charlie brown christmas has become a Christmas staple in Atlanta. In what ways has this show evolved over the years since you two began? I think the um, first year, we really just played the record and we didn't really think about <laughs> of it like ending big or, you know, going out on a high note. We, we weren't show busying it. We just played it. So the, the record ends on kind of a quiet, uh, you know, solemn note with the Christmas song by Mel Torme. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir Folks dressed up like Eskimos you know, we've added something at the end, and so I think it ends on more of a positive party note. <laughs> That's changed a lot. Oh, and I guess no spoilers here. Well, I think anybody that's gone knows that we do a lot of the songs from Phil Spector, and so uh, the Phil Spector Christmas gift to you. We have a bunch of guests to come up on stage. The show's just gotten a little more involved in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of people that play in it and the opening acts and... What do you think it is about Vince Guaraldi's music that encapsulates the spirit of Christmas? Boy, there's a real kind of quietness to the and a meditative quality to the album that actually, in a weird way, runs counter to the sort of frenetic tempo of the month of December, you know, with shopping and holiday parties and different events that people 
feel like they need to go, you know, it seems like everybody I know, you know, is pretty much almost kind of book solid for the month. You know, I don't, I remember it being a little bit slower paced when I was young. And I think, especially if you go back a little before I was born back to the genesis of the Charlie Brown specials, it was a little bit of a different time and a slower tempo in life. And, and I think there's maybe a hunger for that to some degree beyond uh, the basic nostalgia of it. I think it reflects a side of Christmas that's uh, less in evidence maybe than it ought to be. And that's the sort of quieter, more contemplative side. Listening to you speak, the song Christmas Time is Here just started playing in my mind. Is that the tempo and the mood you're referring to? Sure, that's, yeah, I think that the that ballad is uh, in some ways almost at the center of the album because it's one of the Garaldi originals. Yeah, and, and it does sort of have that open and expansive uh, feeling to it. back or at least not frenetic pace of some Christmas songs we've become accustomed to hearing. Yeah, the Paul McCartney um, simply having a Christmas time never reduces any stress for me or Mariah Carey. So those those sort of song <laughs> hypers, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, pop Christmas songs, they um, it's sort of the antithesis of what you're talking about. And yeah, I think I think the record is a good reminder to slow down. Yeah, it's like you said, it's nice to just like sit and look out a window and <laughs> not have to think too much and not stress. And yeah, that's what the record has always done for me. It's always a, you know, good anecdote to Christmas stress. The Frigidaires will join you both in performing songs from the Ventures and Beach Boys Christmas. For those unfamiliar with the Ventures, they're considered one of the great surf bands. How would you describe their Christmas songs? It's pretty incredible. They're all mashup songs. So it'll be like the rhythm from a Beatles song or from Tequila with a Christmas, a very familiar Christmas melody on it. So even when people think they don't know the record, they totally know the record. And it is notches in right at number three under Phil Spector and Charlie Brown for me. Like, I love that album so much. Absolutely. It's a super, super, super fun record. You know, we find that, you know, at, at these shows, you know, they, they sort of warm up with that. And the crowd is sort of at a fever pitch by the end of that. And then <laughs> there's a way in which we sort of bring the energy down for. But, you know, as Jeffrey said earlier, we bring it back up for the very end. Uh, but it's sort of a curious emotional art for the evening. I'll, I'll say that. Bootser and Titi Mahoney, a Charlie Brown Christmas concert is at various Metro Atlanta venues from December 13th through 19th. And more information is on Bootser's website, jeffreybootser.bandcamp.com. Coming up, 
Our series highlighting local musicians, speaking of music, today featuring singer-songwriter Mike Kinnebrew. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Mike Kennebrew, and I'm a singer-songwriter from Atlanta. I live in Macon, Georgia now, and I play the acoustic guitar, and I would describe my music as lyrically heavy, lyrically driven, acoustic pop Americana, folk, it's a lot of things. The voices in my mind tell me it's all real. But you can buckle up and settle in if you ask me how I feel. Lord, have mercy on a troubled heart like mine. I've always loved music as long as I can remember, but I guess I got my start when uh, I was in high school. I remember being forced to go to church camp and I didn't know anyone, but I I watched this guy uh, who would come out and sit under the tree during the free time and play his acoustic guitar and everybody would gather around him, especially the girls. And I just remember thinking to myself, I need to learn how to do that. And so I got home and I remember my dad could play and, and had a guitar and asked him if he would teach me. And so it started with Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I just kept going from there. Started playing in bars and restaurants and four hours of cover tunes. And then after high school, I started trying to write songs and found that was really what I was better at and what I enjoyed more. And it took it hard like mine. Who could probably do some good if he wasn't drinking all the time? But if there's still some kind of plan for what my life can be, I'll lay it down and you can have what's left of me. My latest single is called What's Left of Me, and uh, I wrote it as I was journeying through the first few months of sobriety. I quit drinking about uh, 13 months ago. It's a song about second chances. It's a song about change. I'm 45 years old and it's easy to believe that you just are what you are and that if you haven't changed by now you're not going to. But this is a song about about making some big changes. Maybe you've worried all your life and struggled with anxiety like I have. Uh, don't believe the lie that it's too late to, to turn that around. Um, or in my case, I realized I was drinking way too much and one day put it down just for a day and turned into a week and turned into a month. And, and uh, now it's been over a year. I don't think I'll ever go back to drinking. And uh, so no matter what you know it is, it's just good to believe that it's never too late to make a change. And so that's what what's left of me is about. Never meant to be this way, it just happened over time. So let me dive into the river, let the water wash me clean, and I'm coming out. You can have what's left of me. 
I love being a Southerner. I think Atlanta and Georgia and the South in general has its fingerprints on, on every song I've ever written. I'm, I'm very proud to be from the South. I know we're not perfect, but I love where I'm from. And I love the people that also call the South their home. To another Christmas movie I'm just holding on To a silent night All is calm and all is bright Just like the leaves I love to go out and hear live music. I was just at Eddie's Attic this week taking in some songwriters. They have something on Tuesday nights about once a month called Writer's Block where they will put up about eight different songwriters who each get up and do a few a few songs. I find that very inspiring and I love watching the the veterans and the ones that are that are new to it uh, getting up there and sharing what they've what they've created. Uh, so Eddie's Attic is one of my favorite places to hear live music. It's it's a legendary venue in in the southeast and uh, then the Red Clay Music Foundry in Duluth is, uh, is also a favorite when I can get up there. They don't put on bad shows at Eddie's or at the Red Clay. Uh, Smith's Old Bar is great, and then, um, I mean, you can't go wrong with the Buckhead Theater. It's, it's always a great show. So simple, so magical, you think that it could never change. Don't you know what change comes to? And we all moved on And we scattered far from California to New York Just like the leaves out on the lawn They're green and yellow, brown and gone Green and yellow, brown and gone On December 15th, I'm playing at my home away from home. It's the annual Christmas show that I get to do that's put on in Highlands, North Carolina. And for the first time, I'll have my own original Christmas song to add to the set list for the night. I am on Spotify and YouTube and Amazon and Apple Music and everywhere that you would ever uh, want to find music. I'm out there and I would love if the listeners would, would go out there and find me, reach out to me. I'd love to, to know that you're listening. I'd love to, to meet you and, and say hi to you and hear what these songs might, might mean to you. So thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to share my music. And uh, you guys have been very gracious to me and I'm so appreciative. Just like the leaves out on the lawn They're green and yellow, brown and gone Green and yellow, brown and gone And though the days can seem so slow The years, I swear the years They melt away like Georgia snow singer-songwriter Mike Kinnebrew and our series Speaking of Music. More information about Kinnebrew's music is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll listen back to my most recent conversation with Atlanta-based actor Danielle Deadweiler. 
She stars in the new critically acclaimed film, Till. Plus, a look at the eclectic group exhibition, Little Things, on view at Swan Coach House Gallery. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with singer Anthony Russell, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.